This is hell. Good morning. My name is Lindsay Gorey, and I am producing today on This is Hell, because unfortunately, our dear leader, Chuck Martz, is still testing positive for COVID. You know, I'd have to say, congrats on going almost three years without getting COVID. It's about time. I just got COVID like a couple months ago. I kind of was glad I got COVID just so that I can be more empathetic, you know, to people who have had COVID. It's a, it did not feel like something that leaves your body very quickly to me. I mean, I feel like I had, I'm still having stomach problems and mucus problems two months later. If Chuck were here, he'd ask me, what's new with me? And I'm still recovering from this past Saturday when I was just trying to make soap in my apartment and I was finishing up and suddenly I heard I'm standing next to my window by my alley and I just heard a car drive very fast into my alley and it was like 20 degrees outside and it was icy so I heard the car slip on ice and crash into something and then my power went out completely out um so i heard all this i didn't see it didn't quite know what was going on um but it sounded bad i didn't really want to go outside in case something was going to explode but i saw my neighbors start to crowd around and check it out and there was an unmanned car (laughs) deserted in the alley crashed into somebody's garage door and also the power transformer or the electricity pole telephone pole whatever we call them these days I don't know. Again, I'm just glad it didn't explode. It knocked out a lot of people's power. And I overheard them talking about a stolen car. And, the, you know, the whoever was driving this car was not there. Um, so unless it was a demon, <laughs> uh, I think there's a good chance it was. But um, I, I guess whoever got away, I hope they're okay. But... Um, my friends told me that apparently there's like a TikTok trend of like people encouraging young people to steal cars because apparently it's pretty easy to steal like I don't know Kias or something. I'm not gonna go into it. I don't want to give anybody any ideas but I'll just put out there that if you're looking for a joyride, if you steal a car and you suddenly have all this like anxiety and adrenaline that makes you like drive 60 miles an hour into an icy alleyway that's not a joy ride that's an anxiety ride and the anxiety of potentially getting caught and going to jail and being in prison not worth it my friends not worth it save that anxiety for more useful crimes stealing a car it i don't know something maybe you need it but (laughs) Didn't really seem like it. Uh, If you can crash it that fast. So, anyways, I'm just glad I wasn't taking my trash out. Um, Nobody else was. Uh, And uh, it's just always crazy when stuff like that happens. But I live to tell the tale. I don't know. I just had to pick an episode for today. 
And so I picked this episode from, let's see, do I have it up here? Where is it? It's from 2019. And it's an interview with Thea and Rio Francos, who is a associate professor of political science at Providence College and a member of the Climate and Community Project. I'm reading their bio on their website right now. Uh, Thea's research focuses on resource extraction, renewable energy, climate change, and global lithium sector, green technologies, social movements, and the Latin American left. These themes are explored in my book, Resource Radicals, from petro-nationalism to post-extractivism in Ecuador. And apparently, Thea is currently writing a book entitled Extraction, the Frontiers of Green Capitalism. So let me pull this, uh, our website up real fast. See what the synopsis for this episode provides because I don't really want to talk that much beforehand I think we'll see how much time there is to talk afterhand (laughs) on this article this interview but let's see so I just pulled it up I have too many tabs open I have a lot of tabs open I lost it already well my ADHD brain also remembered, like, in that moment that there's a question from hell. And it's hard to decide what to say in what order. So, and I was listening yesterday. It sounded like there were two questions from hell, but I only see one now. And that is, what should people be thanking you for this year? What should people be thanking you for this year? Now, I see there's a handful of people listening live right now and we don't have many responses to this week's question from hell so please in the next 40 minutes if you want to broadcast what people should be thanking you for this year on the radio in chicago on saturday and to whoever else listens to our podcast then get your answers in you got about 45 minutes That's how long this interview is. And I swear, I just pulled this up. Did I exit it out immediately? Oh, here it is. (laughs) So this interview, our description on the website, which you can find is political science. Leo Riofrancos explains how an eco-socialist agenda addresses the interlocked crises of climate change and capitalism through a transformative democratic revolution in production, consumption, and social relations, and what a left in power can learn from the politics of extraction in pink-tied Latin America. Alrighty. Well, I believe all we have is that one question from hell, and this episode... So, without further ado, here is Thea Rio Francos speaking with Chuck, May 4th, 2019. This is hell. 
There's an ongoing debate on whether climate change can be addressed at the same time as the capitalism that caused it. Can we deal with both at the same time? While our first guest this week believes both can be done with eco-socialism, she also warns us about leftist policies that are funded by climate change causing extractive resources. Here to talk eco-socialism and extractivism, political scientist Thea Riofrancos wrote the In These Times article, A Plan to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, and she also posted the Dissent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Thea. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You can read her writing at InTheseTimes.com as well as at DissentMagazine.org. And you can find all of her work at Thea riofrancos.com. Follow Thea on Twitter at T. Rio Francos. Your article at In These Times a couple weeks ago, A Path to uh, Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, was actually a response to another article at In These Times by Tabita Chow called We Don't Have Time to End Capitalism, but growth can still be green. The article by Tobita is subheadlined with a descriptor. Growth, energy use, and emissions are historically linked, but this trend could end with mass investment in renewables and energy efficiency. And you write in your responding story, while the question of whether we should address capitalism first or climate change first is often posed in sequential terms, it's a false choice, though a compelling one. Why is addressing climate change first or capitalism first a false choice? Um, So it is a false choice because I think that as social movements um, and also some of our kind of allied uh, insurgent um, elected members um, of of Congress and and at at the sort of city and state level as well, um, are focusing on policies that can address both social economic inequality and forms of domination and exploitation at the same time that they address climate emissions. Um, And I want to address really briefly why I think it's a compelling one. Um, In the next 10 years that we have to seriously change our energy systems, our kind of entire ways of life and built environment in order to avoid further climate um, crisis, it it seems quite compelling to argue that it's not possible to undo an entire model of accumulation that's been built over hundreds of years and is deeply entrenched across the globe. Um, But I think what's important is not to view the matter as ending capitalism before we address climate crisis, but rather finding ways, and there are many ways, to address climate crisis that also begin to chip away at some of the core um, pillars of capitalism, whether that's private property or profit um, or privatized forms of consumption. And so thinking about demands that social movements can make and then some of the policies that those demands might inspire that chip away both at socioeconomic inequality and address mitigating um, uh, and and creating more resiliency uh, uh, around uh, the climate crisis that's already unfolding and has been unfolding for for a while now. We recently spoke with sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, and he was saying that it, you, you know, sustainability is not sustainable and that we need to go to the next step, which is deep adaptation. Are you talking, well, can capitalism adapt to climate change? Is that what you're talking about when you're saying that it is compelling, that, there, that we can adapt capitalism to climate change? Well, I think that the green capitalists and the clean tech industry, which is now like a hundreds of billion dollar industry that's investing in quote unquote clean fuels and clean technology, green technology, does think that that's possible. Um, and I think that certainly forms of investment can take place, you know, within capitalism that 
begin to transition societies to low or no carbon energy. I think that's not only possible, but it's already happening. So to argue otherwise would be unempirical. Um, but those forms of transition, I agree, are not ultimately sustainable because just swapping out one energy source for another doesn't address the fact that capitalism as a system externalizes at environmental and social costs um, and never sort of pays the bill and is always going to kind of ex expand more than is doable with within planetary limits. So I think that while you can change the energy sources and you can potentially lower emissions while not touching the capitalist model of accumulation, capitalism itself cannot be sustainable, at least not in the form that you know we've known it to exist over the past hundreds of years, which is why I'm suggesting that instead of um, sort of thinking about how to adapt capitalism, we should think about reforms um, and that are that are transformative in some way that come out of longstanding social movement, environmental, ecological, and social justice movement demands that also get at some of the most oppressive aspects of capitalism. So let me give some examples to make this a little bit more concrete. Um, there are demands around the country for better mass transit systems. There are demands around the country for addressing the exorbitant cost of housing, which is now one of the primary causes of sort of um, uh, the, the decline in working class, you know, kind of material well-being is both stagnating wages, but also extremely high cost of rent. Um, there are demands popping up that are very interesting for public, democratic and community control over utilities, over the grid. Right. So each of these, you know, if we actually had mass transit, if we actually had a system of zero carbon social housing, if we actually had democratically controlled, decarbonized, grids and utilities, we would be doing two things at once. We would be addressing some of the, the deep forms of exploitation and oppression that occur under capitalism that deny people uh, the sort of means of their own existence in, in housing and transit and other such things. And we would also be moving towards a more sustainable society. That's not just about switching out the energy source. So I don't think that's you know a small task or, or, or unimportant, but it's also about, for example, in the case of transit and housing, collectivizing and socializing the way that we consume because one one of the the aspects of capitalism especially in its sort of like american post-war mass consumption guys is the fact that we all consume privately and we also we also consume things that are manufactured to be obsolete right so we're always we're consuming individually and we're consuming as much as you know the market will sell us so um, I think that transitioning to um, social and collective forms of consumption is a much more rational use of resources, right? So an electric bus is a better use of resources than all of us owning individual Teslas. So what I'm getting at in, the, in these times piece is thinking about demands that simultaneously demand a different form of energy and decarbonization, but also think about reorganizing the way that we relate to one another in ways that that little by little, um, though hopefully, you know, rapidly enough to address the climate crisis, actually change our social relationships, actually change the way that we produce, consume, and work, um, um, as well as changing the, 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 the energy source. And just to reinforce what you said, I want to quote your article where you say, this is not to say that an eco-social strategy has no political tensions or challenges. There will necessarily be changes in habits of consumption, habits that are by no means confined to the affluent. We need to catalyze a change in social values wherein communal activities such as recreational sports, dancing, art projects, and book clubs, as well as forms of collective consumption, not only of transit and housing, but of food, theater, film, and much more, become valorized. So Will the biggest change 
be a societal change, be one where we collectively are working together more, are connected more? Will we have less time to ourselves as we will be dedicating more time to everyone else? Because the thing that I'm concerned about is just like you heard these uh, claims by conservatives that climate change was a socialist plot. I'm afraid that within this, they'll see this is a plot against the individual. So how difficult will it be to have that societal change from one going from one that is so individual-oriented to one that's collectively-oriented? I like that a lot. I think it is a plot against the individual, at least the individual defined as a sort of property-owning consumer, right, as we sort of defined it, especially in the post-war period to, to the present in the United States. Um, I, I, go, I want to reiterate, though, and, I, and, I, and the quote that you read, I think, I think hopefully makes this clear, that my sort of vision of an eco-socialist utopia, right, the thing that sort of gets me up in the morning when I think about what is the society that I'm fighting for is a profoundly pleasurable society, right? It's a society of, of more time to socialize, of more time to engage in those activities that you just listed, of learning and dancing and eating together. And, and these are the types of activities that already give me pleasure when, I'm, when I have time to engage in them in, in, in our existing society. But, but, the, but an eco-socialist, low-carbon society would involve more forms of time spent with meaningful social relations rather with than consuming junk that doesn't actually make us happy, right? Um, um, so I think that that's, that's a, a key point to, to point out. And there's a recent um, article out in The Intercept by, by Kate Aronoff about how a Green New Deal might make us happier, right? So um, I think that a plot against the individual, again, as defined as a sort of um, overworked, over-consuming individual that really is not happy at the end of the day. I mean, we even have a crisis in the U.S. with forms of addiction, with increasing suicide rates. I mean, I don't think that anyone could argue that the, the masses of working-class people in the U.S. are, are happy with their existence. Um, so I think that you know, now is a moment to kind of rethink what we value and think about ways that a society that values more time together and more pleasurable um, um, activities would also be a society that is better for better for the environment. You're right. We need to ensure that redistribution and the public provisioning of goods and services like transit and healthcare would offset the increased costs of some consumer items. So is that the hardest message to convey to people who are skeptical about the near-term impact of climate change? That is convincing them that public provisioning of goods and services like transit and healthcare would offset any increased costs, including taxes. Is the most difficult thing to change people's minds on taxes and public funding will be offset by lower costs? Well, so yeah, I think that there's a couple of things kind of in in terms of the economics of this that that I'm getting at in the sentence and that you're also bringing up. Um, Some interesting new survey data by the uh, the Center for Data Progress, I think they're called, shows surprisingly to me um, that Americans that they surveyed actually are in favor of increasing taxes on the wealthy, not on everybody, but on the wealthy, um, on the ultra-rich, in order to fund a Green New Deal. And that in and of itself, it might not surprise them on the left that people would support that, but I think that we both know that there's a very deep anti-tax sentiment in the U.S., and even when you ask people and make it clear that it's taxes on that wouldn't affect them, that would affect the, the better off, people still are hesitant to support tax increases. But this interesting new data shows that there's growing support for tax increases to fund a Green New Deal so long as those tax increases are progressive in nature and affect, you know, the 1% or however you want to frame it. So so I think that attitudes on that are shifting a bit in interesting ways that a left-wing kind of project around the Green New Deal could further kind of shift um, uh, that social opinion. Um, 
so that that's one set of things. Um, another another set of things is is what I'm talking about in this sentence, which is that you know right now we are we in the U.S. and we in many places in the world are kind of used to artificially cheap forms of consumption, right? The fact that you know buying a new cell phone every year or eating red meat that is super cheap, especially if you you know get it at a fast food place, that feels cheap to us. But there's a whole system that makes that artificially cheap, right? Um, some of that has to do with the fact that corporations don't ever pay the full bill for social and environmental costs of, for example, the factory farm system. Some of that also has to do with the fact that our own tax dollars and and you know government subsidize. Um, in industrial agriculture and make it artificially cheap. So there's a whole set of, of processes that make our consumption artificially cheap and allow us to consume even as you know wages are stagnating. So um, there's a tricky set of public policy changes that need to both, on the one hand, force corporations to pay the full cost of their environmental and social harms um, and also regulate those industries much more so there are fewer social environmental harms. But then the issue comes up immediately of people who um, um, don't make very much money and are used to sort of being able to buy some of these things with their with their income and how those prices might increase for food or um, for other for other consumer goods that whose prices would increase if corporations actually sort of embedded the full cost of their environmental and social impacts into the price. So in order to offset that, I think we need to think as much as possible about what some scholars call the social wage, like that that is the and what we might call in the U.S. kind of welfare or public provision. So thinking about ways that individuals um, with higher taxes on the wealthy. Um, um, we could fund things like mass transit, like social housing, so that each individual wasn't paying so much of their individual income for things that ensure their basic social reproduction, like their home and their transit to work and those sorts of things. So if we were, as a society, if each individual was paying less of that because that was socialized, then people could afford to pay a little bit more for their for some consumer goods and food and things like that, and those those consumer goods could reflect more the real social environmental cost of their of their um, of their production. We are speaking with political scientist Thea Rio Francos. She wrote the In These Times article, "A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice," which you can find at InTheseTimes.com. She also posted the Dissent Magazine article, "What Comes After Extractivism," which you can find at DissentMagazine.org. Thea's upcoming book is called. Resource Radicals from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. And she is on the steering committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, Eco-Socialists. You can find out more about Thea at TheaRioFrancos.com. You mentioned built-in obsolescence earlier. You write, we must eat less red meat and devalue the consumption of plastic junk and latest model cell phones and other tech that not only contribute to social alienation, but are tremendously destructive to the planet. Manufactured for obsolescence, shipped across great distances in carbon-spewing ships and trucks, and relying on neo-colonial patterns of cheapened nature and labor in the global south. To you, what does planned, built-in obsolescence, what does that reveal to you about the nature or maybe the state of capitalism today? Well, I think it kind of picks up on some of the points that that I was um, making before that the the kind of definition of of the individual as a consumer and the fact that we are constantly being um, marketed sort of the next model and that our very deep identities and affects and sort of ways of being in the world are structured around 
consuming the latest model cell phone or the latest model um, computer or clothing. And, you know, fashion is, is, is also part of this. I don't mention this in the article, but the extremely cheap, artificially cheap for all of the reasons that I just said, because the corporations never pay the full social and environmental cost of, of, um, of the production of this fashion and including the extremely cheapened labor um, um, that, that is primarily in the global south, but, but also in, in the U.S., um, that, that is the sort of enabling conditions for this extremely cheap consumption. Um, and in this process, we have like lost, uh, I don't want to say this in a nostalgic way, because my goal is not to return to the past, but I just want to note that we have lost kind of like basic relationships and forms of control over the objects in our lives. Like I have a cell phone. I have no idea how to repair it if something went wrong with it. I wouldn't even know um, um, in the U.S. at least like where to take it to repair it if the battery stopped working or if the, you know, what, what you know, basically we are told that if our thing breaks, we are to buy a new one, right? This is not exactly the case everywhere in the world. I think that there are places that still have, you know, this. I, I spent a lot of time in South America researching um, uh, extractivism, which we'll get to next. And there are many more forms of like repair shops around that still exist for electronics, but there are fewer and fewer of those types of electronic repair shops in the U.S., um, partly because the phones are literally, the phones and our, and our iPads and tablets and all sorts of things are designed to be very difficult to repair. And they're designed that way on purpose um, in order to encourage people to buy new objects rather than repairing the ones that we have. And there's an interesting kind of maybe movement is too strong a word, but there's an interesting kind of environmental kind of ecological sustainability term that is called the right to repair. And the right to repair just kind of forces us to think about, you know, why do we have no, like, control or relationship or kind of, like, sense of care about the objects that we have? We throw them out as soon as they kind of falter a little bit and buy something new that might be doable for us because of the artificial cheapness of consumer goods, but is contributing to just mountains and mountains of discarded junk that is not being properly recycled, um, um, and is not being reused um, and is just contributing to global warming in a million ways. Um, I'll just note that right now I'm studying lithium extraction in South America. Lithium is a key element that goes into all of our rechargeable batteries, whether cell phones or Teslas, you know, anything that recharges. And lithium will be a key extractive frontier in the renewable transition because the more and more we electrify transit, the more we'll need batteries. Um, there's a bunch that I could go into with some of the ecological and social impacts of lithium mining. But for now, I'll just say that, you know, we could be building infrastructures to recycle batteries so that with the coming renewable transition, we don't just throw out these batteries as soon as they're not working perfectly or holding a charge for as long as we would like. And we reuse them for some other application, which can certainly be done. And there's a lot of interesting research on battery recycling. But right now, aside from China, most countries in the world don't really have battery recycling infrastructures, which will, as you can imagine, create like a huge amount of waste once we fully transition to, for example, electrified transit. And while you are writing about eco-socialism, I think this is a good segue into extractivism. You write that a neoliberal climate policy without social justice at the center is a political dead end. Why is climate policy without social justice at its center a political dead end? Well, I think that we saw this with the, the ongoing Yellow Vest movement, which is um, um, uh, continuing to protest um, what was originally a tax increase on, on fuel in France, but has become a, a broader movement than, than just that. Um, but I think that we see that when 
when policymakers implement policies like a carbon price or carbon tax or fuel tax with, you know, some to some extent, you know, the good intentions of of um, incentivizing people to shift away from high carbon towards lower zero carbon um, forms of energy, when they do that without taking into account the unequal societies that already exist and therefore the fact that those costs will be borne unequally unless they are intentionally designed to mitigate that that inequality, then people will riot. People will protest, and for good reason, because the working class and economically precarious of the world is struggling to meet their sort of day-to-day needs. And, And so something like a carbon price or a carbon tax, again, without sort of taking into account inequality um, and without mitigating that inequality in the design of the policy is going to elicit protest or it's just not going to work. It's not going to pass as a policy. So I think that, you know, thinking about ways, which is, which is, I think, the sort of genius of the Green New Deal, not that I don't have some critiques of the, the current proposals in, in, contained in the Green New Deal vision, but, um, but I think the genius and the most important part of the Green New Deal is the way that it explicitly connects climate climate crisis and climate um, change to social and economic inequality, which I want to note is a con- is not like an invention of the Green New Deal. Climate justice and environmental justice movements for decades have been saying that inequality and climate change are inextricably linked to one another. The reasons for that are twofold. On the one hand, the most affluent within the U.S. and in the world, both people and kind of entire countries, the most affluent emit the most carbon. Their lifestyles are the most carbon intensive. They consume the most. I mean, they have the most swimming pools. They have the most cars. It's kind of obvious once you start to think about it, but it's an extremely tight correlation. On the other hand, another extremely tight correlation is that those who consume the least and who have contributed the least to global emissions are the most vulnerable to climate change for other reasons that are also, I think, rather obvious once you start to think about it. So there's a deep relationship between inequality and climate change. And I think that that kind of insight also has its sort of like political strategic um, corollary, which is that we need to address both of these at the same time in our social movement demands and also in our public policies. Um, We cannot separate them out because they are inextricably linked. And when we try to separate them out, we get, I think, reasonable forms of of protest and and rioting and, 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 and disaffection among the public who feel that they are being burdened by uh, a problem that they did not individually create. And if they're not well off, they contributed basically nothing to this problem. So let's go from a process that actually addresses capitalism and climate change, eco-socialism, to a way that only addresses capitalism, and that's extractivism. In your article at Descent Magazine, what comes after extractivism, you start by writing on December 14, 2016, leftist President Rafael Correa declared a state of emergency in the province of Morona, Santiago, in the Amazonian region of Ecuador, deploying hundreds of troops and nationalist police. This marked the culmination of years of clashes at the site of an open pit copper mine in the area of San Carlos, which indigenous Shuar people had occupied in protest against the expansion of mining and the threat posed to their territory and livelihoods. So local indigenous people were protesting mine expansion that would threaten their homes and lives. What explains why a leftist president would send in the troops? And was this action by Korea a surprise to his supporters or unpopular? So... So it was not it was not a surprise. I, I don't know if it was a surprise to his sort of like like, you know, base of, of supporters that that were very loyal to him. But it wasn't a surprise more broadly because Korea had been involved 
for years. Um, Correa came to power in 2007. Um, I, my first experience living in Ecuador was the year after that. And so I kind of throughout my, my time in Ecuador observed this process un, unfold. He was in power for 10 years, totally democratically. He won multiple elections. Um, so from 2007 to 2017, Rafael Correa was in power along with many other left-wing governments throughout the region, which is called the pink tide. Um, and it's called that because they weren't, you know, kind of like state socialists or they weren't revolutionary. So it's not the red tide, but it's, it's the pink tide. They, they, were, they were moving policies in a leftward direction. So during that time, especially in Ecuador, but also in Bolivia, also to an extent in Venezuela and Brazil and some of the other countries that currently have or did have left-wing governments, there erupted conflicts between indigenous and environmental movements and the left in power over the question of the what's called the extractive model of development. And so this was not a surprise. This was sort of the culmination and one of the most intense instances because the military was there and there was a state of emergency for three months and the Shuar indigenous people had reoccupied land that had become a mining camp. And so it was, you know, a particularly contentious and, and, and violent and intense moment of, of conflict. But it was by no means the first one there. I, I personally participated and observed a two-week-long march that went from the Amazon all the way to Quito, 700 kilometers. Um, that, was, that was sparked by anti-mining protests, um, and, and though it also ended up involving other demands as well. But there was ongoing protests during the Korea administration over this. And why? Um, I, I'll just sort of lay out a little bit the kind of broader um, the, 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 the kind of broader conjuncture. On the one hand, the left was coming to power across Latin America, and Ecuador was one example of that, and that's referred to as the pink tide, as I just mentioned. That started with Chavez coming to power in 1999, and you have for a decade and a half, you have left governments sort of ruling over much of the region. At its height, I think in 2009 or 10, left-wing governments Two-thirds of the region pop, region's population lived under left-of-center or pretty left-wing governments, right? So that's a historic change. For anyone familiar with the history of Latin America, you have in the 70s and 80s these brutal right-wing dictatorships. In the 80s through the early 2000s, in many, in many um, uh, parts of the region, you have neoliberal governments. So it's right in, like, 2000 where this tide is turning to the left because people are just fed up with neoliberal policies and are not serving them. So a lot of left-wing um, governments are elected. Interestingly, in total historical coincidence, at the same time, you have the beginning of what people refer to as the commodity boom. So that is literally at the same time, from around 2000 to around 2014, it ends abruptly with the fall in the price of oil. But for a decade and a half, you have sustained high prices for commodities like soy, gas, um, gold, copper, oil, all of these primary commodities that all also happen to be Latin America's primary ex exports. So in a way, this is like a win-win situation. I'm going to put the environment and climate and indigenous rights to the side for just a moment to explain some of the positives that this positive opportunities that this opened up for the left in power, and then I'll get into the problems with it. So on the one hand, you have this positive situation. Left-wing governments come to power with tremendous popular support and very broad popular mandates, and they have the fiscal resources. They have the taxes and royalties and rents that come from all of these extractive sectors and these agribusiness sectors that are flooding their treasuries with money, and they have the money to spend on social services, on public infrastructure, um, on all sorts of things that, that affect people's um, material well-being in a very direct way. So they're able to sort of make good on their economic justice promises 
to pull the poor out of poverty, to reduce inequality, to address longstanding issues of joblessness, of sanitation, um, of, of, of education, all sorts of things. And you see really dramatic changes um, that even sort of like institutions that we wouldn't expect, like the World Bank, like speak positively, positively of because so many people were pulled out of poverty by public policies that use these resource rents, that use this income from resource extraction in order to benefit um, the majority of the population. And one more thing before getting into some of the, ne the deep negatives, the deep problems with this model that I want to note is that it wasn't just the invention of these left governments, right? And so I don't like to start the story of the pink tide, even though I kind of just did, with these governments coming to power. Because before they came to power, there was a decade of social mobilization across the region protesting neoliberal policies. And one of the demands, and these demands were really salient in countries like Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela, countries that are dependent on these primary commodities, the demand was these resources have long served foreign capitalists. It's time for them to serve us. It's time to actually redistribute and democratize and have public ownership and state ownership and over these resources so that we can actually benefit from them. Now, full expropriation didn't happen in most cases, but the left governments did, to an extent, respond to those demands by instead of using resource rents to sort of um, benefit or profit foreign corporations, they started to use them to actually fund social services. So I want to know that this was social movement demand initially. Um, but what happened was that as this model got intensified, and especially as we move into more and more really environmentally damaging um, forms of extraction, and I'm thinking particularly of large-scale mining, which, as we know from the U.S. history of, of and present of, of mining, you know, removes mountaintops, it moves entire communities, it pollutes water systems. There's no such thing as sustainable or responsible mining. That's kind of a corporate discourse. Um, mining always pollutes. It's just an extremely intensive uh, extractive process. Um, so as that, as it became clear, especially to the local communities, oftentimes indigenous, but also campesino or small farmer, mestizo, not only indigenous, but often indigenous communities, what the social and environmental costs of this sort of economic boom and this kind of redistributive boom were, they began to protest. And this started little by little to become a wedge between some of the very communities and movements that had supported the rise of the left and that had opened up the possibility through their protest against prior neoliberal governments. They began to protest the left. And in, and in several cases, but Ecuador is, I think, a particularly good example of this, it became very polarized very quickly. So Correa could have negotiated, or he could have said, let's slow down this extractive process, or let's think how to do it, you know, with more respect for indigenous rights and actually consulting indigenous communities as is, you know, the international norm and, and national law in Ecuador, um, and, and, and think about how to do this in a way that is less harmful, um, less rapid. I mean, just like the pace of extraction became very rapid. Um, and But that didn't happen. It got very polarized. So on the one hand, you had a leftist government with a real wide base of support, because many poor and working-class Ecuadorians really directly benefited from his policies. Um, but then there were many that didn't, in the sense of the, the, the communities that already, um, because of being indigenous and, and being rural and peripheral, already faced other forms of marginalization, just now had like a new thing to contend with, which was the expansion of large-scale mining. So this became a real wedge within the left, among movements, among what we call the popular sectors of the marginalized and exploited and excluded in, in Ecuador, um, this became a wedge that divided 
some of those that, that did benefit, um, um, at least during the boom. But again, those benefits end very dramatically once the boom ends. Um, and those that were bearing some of the immediate social and environmental costs. Um, though, of course, there are broader planetary environmental costs um, because resource extraction as a model of development also contributes to climate change through deforestation and building roads to export and extract um, um, primary commodities. So it, it, it has planetary effects, but the immediate environmental forms of contamination are what get people to, to mobilize. Do leftist governments like the one in Ecuador, do they have a choice in the way that they can fund their leftist projects? Uh, how dependent are Latin American economies on extraction? And I, I don't want to ask you too many questions in one question, but my follow-up was going to be, and why? Does that say something about the colonial relationship? It absolutely does. I'm going to start with the end, the last question first, and then I'll come back to the fiscal model or to the model of sort of replacing resource rents with something else. Um, it absolutely is rooted in, in colonialism. I, I, I teach Latin American politics, and sort of our first week or two of classes is on the sort of initial colonial encounter, and that is when this model of rapacious resource extraction first to fund the Spanish Empire, um, but it doesn't get get dramatically changed at all by by the the by governments after the the independence from the Spanish empire kind of stays in place and it gets at some moments in Latin American history, there are interesting attempts to kind of change this model. So in the mid-century or the mid-20th century, you have attempts to kind of shift away from primary resource extraction towards more industrialization. And that works to some extent in some places. I think Brazil stands out, Argentina maybe after Brazil, um, in terms of countries that were able to build to some extent an industrial base that has its own environmental costs. I don't want to downplay that, but is is less immediately dependent on the extraction of resources. But that that is, to some extent, a short-lived moment of what's called sort of developmentalism uh, or kind of state-led industrialization. And then we have those brutal right-wing dictatorships that I mentioned, and then we have neoliberalism. And it's during the neoliberal moment that that the resource extraction sectors are deregulated and that foreign investment is courted. And that's when the model of resource extraction, which has hundreds of years in history, going back to the silver mines of Potosi, um, which funded the Spanish Empire, um, gets really entrenched, re-entrenched again. Um, so, so it has a longer durée history, but there are there, you know, are, are sort of conjunctural changes. And 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 as of the neoliberal period, we're in a moment of re-entrenchment, which unfortunately, while the left was in power, got further deepened because of the very high prices for commodities. It's understandable that it was hard to resist sort of funding social programs, which again were part of their mandate to come to power with um, with these commodities that had like extraordinarily um, unusually high prices. Um, so what could have the left done differently? And I, I want to note that it wasn't like no one tried to do anything different. In fact, Correa himself, and I think he doesn't get enough attention for this um, among those who are critical of his extractivist policies, um, he did actually implement some changes to the tax code that made the tax system more progressive and that specifically taxed forms of, of wealth and capital um, of the very rich in Ecuador, and that also tried to close some of the issues with tax loopholes that, that allowed for sort of evasion of taxes. And this is just, you know, it, it is, you know, we were talking earlier about taxes in the U.S. and people's anti-tax attitudes. This is a big deal in, in South America as well, and, and even more so because the states are sort of 
um, historically weak and have low institutional capacity in terms of actually collecting taxes. And the rich have never wanted to pay taxes in, in, in South America. And this, this actually is another thing that dates even to the early, um, to the early independence era um, that, that I was just mentioning. So you have a longstanding issue with a lack of a sustainable fiscal base, meaning a lack of a, of, of a sort of income for the state that comes from property and income taxes, which is more sustainable because you know, you know how much property there is, you know how much you tax it, you know how much you're going to get each year, where if your, ta- where if your fiscal base is based on um, uh, the export of primary commodities, each year they might have a different price. They're very volatile. That decade and a half of high prices was very unusual. And since then, we've been back to a more normal sort of price volatility for primary commodities. So the trick is, is to make the, the sort of income of the state more dependent on taxing the rich and these are extremely unequal societies, right? So that would also have a an, another benefit, which is making those societies less um, less unequal and reducing some of the political power of the rich by taking some of their wealth away, right? So making the the, the basis of the state um, uh, or the fiscal basis of the state more based on taxes and rather rather than based on um, commodity exports, and that is extremely difficult. Just the sort of bureaucratic task of building up state capacity to actually tax the wealthy and make sure that they don't evade it, but but moving in that direction, um, even if it's through incremental policy reforms, is extremely important for having an an actual pool of money that can be used to spend on the needs of the least well-off, but that doesn't further entrench extractivism. We have been speaking with political scientist Theorio Francos. She wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, which you can find at InTheseTimes.com. She also posted the Descent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. You can find that story at DescentMagazine.org. Thea, as we do with all of our guests, we have uh, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, when the left is in power, both governments and movements claim the mantle of representing the people and pursuing greater equality. As a result, the left is marked by a dilemma. From the position of governance, how do you occupy the state at the same time that you seek to transform it? How do you do that? How do you occupy the state at the same time that you seek to transform it? We've had recent guests suggest that by fixing capitalism, by reforming it, you're making an unfair system more powerful. Any reform or fix is a re-entrenchment of capitalism. You're actually enabling the system of oppression that you are fighting against. So to what extent can the state transform the state, no matter how far left the state is? So I think that the, the best way to think about this question is to reframe it slightly. Um, and I don't think the state can do anything on its own. I don't even think, you know, with the best person in power, with the best party in power and with the best intentions and the best policy plans, um, those might have some positive effect. But without a broader sort of ecosystem of social mobilization, of disruptive capacity, of collective power, of, you know, the, what we call the sort of 99 percent or the popular sectors or the sort of grassroots, without that form of social mobilization and social organization, there are many limitations to what the state, the state, um, uh, or 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 a left political party or a leader can do on their own, because they will inevitably um, run up against the limitations of the power of investors, of the power of the ruling class, um, of the power of the powerful. Right. So without without having um, even with good intentions, there are limitations, and sort of without having a grassroots movement that is 
has some autonomy from the state, and this is important, has some critical sort of distance from the state and can pressure the state to be as radical as possible, but also can sort of defend left policy advances against the inevitable reaction of the ruling class without a sort of healthy ecosystem of organization from below. I don't actually think that uh, even a very enlightened, you know, leftist uh, 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 statesperson can accomplish very much on their own. So I agree that there are serious kind of pitfalls and limitations to thinking solely in terms of the state or government or legislative reforms, but I don't think that that makes those irrelevant. What I think is important is a difficult-to-achieve dynamic of, of popular kind of mobilization that has some autonomy from the state that isn't co-opted or like a, just like a, an arm of the state um, that can put, therefore push the state to be more radical, can sort of keep the state accountable, right? I think about this all the time, like, you know, what if Bernie were to come to power, right? And we don't know, but what if, or what if, you know, a left-wing president, any whoever it was in the future were to come to power in the U.S., right? I don't think that that means that left movements are no longer necessary. I think that they become even more necessary to keep those politicians accountable and also to defend gains when they happen against the inevitable reaction of the ruling class. So I would reframe that question slightly and think more broadly in terms of state society relations, more broadly in terms of of forms of um, non-state disruptive political activity from below um, that is pushing the state and simultaneously defending Left gains. And I think when we look back into history and look at experiences with the left in power, whether it's recently the pink tide in Latin America, whether it's um, um, Allende in, in, in Chile in the 1970s, whether it's Teresa in, in Greece, like whenever we see examples of the left in power, when that dynamic is missing, when we don't have social movements from below holding politicians accountable um, and also defending the gains that are that are made, we see that the left is weakened in, in the state, it's isolated, and it's prone to being co-opted by, by the ruling class or just being like totally limited by the ruling class. Or worse, what happened to um, Allende, we see that you know coups and, and military interventions take place. So I think that dynamic of movements of the left, um, the sort of left in resistance and the left in power is, is really key to understanding how left projects can be sustainable and transformative over time. Thea, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'd love to have you back on when your new book comes out, Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. So anticipate us annoying you in emails in the very near future. I'd be happy to. Thank you. That's political scientist Thea Rio Franco. She wrote the In These Times article, A Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, and the Dissent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. You can find all of her work at TheaRioFrancos.com. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com. Welcome back to the present moment. You were just listening to Thea Rio Francos speak with Chuck Mertz in 2019. So, I think that was, you know, it's only been a few years, so... All that stuff is still quite relevant. And I talked earlier, if you were joining me, about my experience this weekend of having a stolen car crash into the power pole in my alley and my electricity going out. And 
the first thing Thea talks about in that interview is how we consume individualistically in this society. And I would say that my power outage really put that into perspective for me because I live alone. <laughs> and suddenly, I, you know, my phone was barely even charged. It was like 20 degrees outside. I don't have power. Suddenly, I realized, you know, that can happen at any second. And I'm totally unprepared for any kind of... I got snowed in. I don't have any water stored in my apartment. That's silly. But, you know, it's something we probably wouldn't have to think about so much on our own if all of the resources that every single person needs to just continue existing um, were accessible to us rather than privatized by capitalists. Things like uh, shelter, food, water. During that, I, was, I just found a website called findaspring.com and anywhere in the world you can try and look up where a free water spring is because I don't trust my own pipes that I pay $1,200 a month for. But anyways, <laughs> the one thing I'd say uh, I felt like was missing in that interview was more of a discussion on like a decolonial perspective. I mean, the pink tide was talked about um, and... I think, uh, you know, indigenous movements in Latin America are very uh, much active, but um, yeah, even if we had socialism, like she was saying at the end, even if Bernie Sanders won, like our government still exists to legitimize colonization and which has always involved ecological destruction. And I would also say that when my power went out and I was feeling very alone in the world, you know, I, with my little bit of phone juice, I was able to call a few friends. And one of my friends uh, was going to a meeting with some indigenous anarchists. They were having a discussion about the anarchist movements of the Mexican Revolution. So not the Pink Tide, but earlier, back in like 1910. And I learned a lot. Shout out to Ezra for translating the whole thing for me into English. That was sweet of you. But yeah, there's a whole lot more in that interview that comes up for me. And I don't know, one of them, when she was talking about how things are artificially cheap in our society, like we don't, like the tagline that's like, we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. I've been thinking about that lately with inflation. As somebody who has dumpster dived quite a bit and watches a lot of dumpster diving videos, I just, I don't even understand where inflation for goods is coming from when these companies that say they need to raise prices can afford to just throw away perfectly good inventory. It's happening all the time. If you're not watching dumpster diving TikTok or you know, YouTube or whatever, it's out there. There's <laughs> a lot, cause it's like, I went to, I got a, I got a tip from the Food Not Bombs thread that a certain Walgreens in Evanston had thrown away a bunch of Halloween candy, like Reese's Cups. And I was like, I'll go check it out. Cause you know, I don't really spend my time anymore like looking into random dumpsters cause I have too much stuff, but if I get a tip, like, if, I, if you know where to go, it's pretty helpful. So I get there, and 
all of the all of the like wrapped candy that was it's a ex, their expiration date was in like spring of 2023 and they were all at the bottom of the trash can underneath a bunch of bags of like ice cream and frozen pizzas that had been thrown away not past their date you know people will be like oh maybe a freezer went out i don't know but usually it usually is just that stores get a new inventory and they need somewhere to put it and there's old inventory they need to get get rid of it there's only so much space so yeah next year when halloween candy is double in price i don't know maybe it has something to do with half of the inventory just getting thrown away at the end of the year rather than like sold for cheap it really doesn't make sense i can't i can't make it make sense but yeah just check out the world of dumpster diving if you don't believe me because i mean Theo was talking about that. I'm just, I mean, it's not even companies, but like, since everything's made cheaply and it's just like cheaper in time and labor to go like buy something new rather than repair these things that are like cheaply made, that's so much stuff in our alleyways, you know? And why well, I had to kind of stop dumpster dining because I just had too much half broken stuff. So I guess. The last thing I wanted to talk about on that note, why I thought this in interview was interesting in the first place is what I've been thinking about with my job at the farmer's market ending because it's November, it's Chicago, it was just 20 degrees last weekend. It was the last day of the market in Lincoln Park on Saturday and I didn't go to work because it was supposed to be 20 degrees all day and the market is outside so I'd have to stand there for six hours stand still <laughs> try and press all these little foam buttons to charge people in 20 degree weather and i'm from arizona so i don't know if all you chicagoans want to act like tough guys out there in the cold go ahead but i don't really care i think it doesn't make any sense that local food is more difficult to get than food that is driven like across the country or further, you know, like the grocery stores right now, it's winter. They're going to be filled with produce from Mexico, from produce from further south, you know, in South America. Why is that more accessible than food that is grown locally? It doesn't make sense. It should be easier to get local food. And I didn't grow up going to farmer's markets. I don't know if my parents ever took me to one. We were grocery store kind of people. And so I always had this idea that like farmer's markets were this kind of better alternative. You know, you can get better quality stuff or like meet your farmers or whatever. But after working at them, I would have to say, I think that they're still pretty inaccessible. I mean, each farmer's market only happens once a week for a few hours at a time, five or six hours. And a grocery store is open all week. It's there in the same place all the time. And, I, and then a farmer's market is only open one week, one day a week, and it's outside. What happens if the weather is horrible? 
which happens all the time in Chicago, then either you risk your life to sell some stuff, like I was asked to do a few weeks ago by the farmer's market when there were 60 and 70 mile an hour wind gusts. I didn't go, again, I didn't go. Other people, you know, some of them, maybe they actually really need the money that bad to risk their life. But I would also say that there is kind of like, to me as being a woman and having, I didn't work with any other women at the farmer's market, there does seem to be a toxically masculine attitude of just toughing this stuff out. Like not complaining about how much you have to lift, not complaining about, you know, the uncomfortableness of it when like, I'm only getting paid the same amount and suddenly this job is way more dangerous and harder because of the weather. And like, I don't want to blame farmers for this because it's not their fault. Like, that's the thing is if weather is bad, then the farmer just got screwed out of all of their sales for that week. If there's no other day to make it up, like their produce could potentially rot. You know what would be nice? If they could bring it to a grocery store where it could just sit there all week open. Why don't the grocery stores have, why aren't the grocery stores filled with stuff from local farmers? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe to, I don't know. I have always lived in an urban area, if you can tell. So if it's different where you are, sorry, but here in Chicago and where I'm from in urban Phoenix, you know, that's the whole issue with environmental contamination is like if we could just grow stuff nearby, that would really change a lot. Anyways, I'm just trying to say about farmers markets, they could be better too, you know? Yeah, sure, it's nice to have a whimsical day and it's a beautiful day in Chicago in the summer at the farmer's market, but the weather is not like that all the time. And I think that things should be more accessible. So, anyways, that's me. Always have someone to complain about. If you have another job for me, let me know. Because that's another thing is like, I had to be there every single week all summer because if I missed a day, there wasn't a day to make up the hours. And so, but suddenly, okay, no more job. I never had health insurance the whole time. I had to work outside. I got COVID, had to go back out and work in the cold after getting COVID. And then just no work in the winter at all. I made a joke to my coworker and then who, who shared it with a number of customers in Lincoln Park that we were starting a winter survival fund, that we needed a tip jar for our winter survival fund. If you could please contribute to keeping us alive until next year, if you want to buy your mushrooms here next year. But anyways, honestly, as much as I complain, I actually really uh, like that job a lot more than some of my other jobs but farmers market market it's still capitalism so again i'm not trying to blame farmers and like the prices at farmers markets have to be higher because like you're asking people to drive in and set up and take that all down all in one day 
because this market is only temporary and doesn't have like, you know, bricks like a grocery store. All that is extra labor in addition to the hard labor that it takes to grow any, to produce any food at all. And that's another problem is why do the people who know how to feed everybody else have difficulty providing for themselves? It beats me. Beats me. But anyways, if you need food, you should be able to find some in like any grocery store dumpster. Uh, if your local Food Not Bombs has not figured out a way to divert that food already or you can't find them so all right i don't know if there's anything left to say oh yeah there's a question from how <laughs> there's only a few responses still so let's do this quick uh the question from how this week what should people be thanking you for this year what should be thanking you people be thanking you for this year so I guess my whole rant was just about I need people to thank me for setting up a temporary store for them outside of the park and exposing myself to the elements for uh, not that much money. I mean, when I made commission, I would say my wage, I can't complain about my wage that much, um, but commission's not reliable and commission is not health insurance, so anyways, what? should people be thanking you for this year so uh brandon s says not getting in the way thanks brandon or brayden sorry brayden brayden i can't click your profile because i'm not like logged in on facebook but you look like you might be a white man so honestly thank you for not getting in the way i'm being 100 percent sincere uh from Pete V, my unique charm and rapier-like wit. I might be saying that word wrong. I don't know. Rapier? As in the sword doofus? Again, still the doofus over here. I don't know how to say that. But you do have a unique charm, Pete. I'll agree with that. Thank you for your unique charm. Justin M. What... Should people be thinking just an M4 is not reproducing? You're welcome, humanity. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I am happy with everybody uh, taking that, taking that route. So uh, let's see. We have Bree P says that they should be thanked for that their prediction of a Tom Cotton 2024 presidency win will not come to fruition. Hashtag, I didn't know DeSantis was a thing. I had to Google both those people. They're politicians. I block that stuff out. So, yeah, I'm glad whatever that is shouldn't come true either. All right, that's it for Facebook. And I think that... There's only a few responses here on Twitter. So perhaps I'll leave them for Dan tomorrow. And with that, looks like 
we've spent plenty of time together here today and i appreciate you for listening hopefully chuck will be neck back next week but we just got an update last night that he is still testing positive for covid it's i think it's been about a week since he started showing symptoms so you know that hopefully he'll be testing negative um you know in the next coming days to week i know it can take a long time for some people it took me a week to stop testing positive but i still didn't feel good for another week or two weeks like i mean good is also maybe an exaggeration but feel normal so yeah i think the cdc guidelines of from what i read like if you have a mild case like they say it's okay to go back to work like five days after your first positive test and i just don't understand how anybody could be fully recovered unless they had an asymptomatic case by then um but you know <laughs> the government doesn't want to pay us to not work anymore which is one thing i think about i feel like i got more money when Donald Trump was president than when Biden was. I don't know. I could be wrong. I, like I said, I block it out. I block it out. But anyways, send your prayers, send your vibes to, to try and work those viruses out of Chuck's cells. If you'd like to hear him again, yes. Send those vibrations, vibrate those viruses out of those cells because they're all, they're all cells are made up of atoms or whatever and they're all vibrating or something i think i learned that in chemistry so i think with the <laughs> i don't know i don't see how your thought vibrations could hurt so even if they don't do anything good how could it be bad all right well with that i uh, hope to speak with y'all next week have a nice day and enjoy your playback with Dan tomorrow. How about I let you know what Dan is playing? Because Dan always got the good picks. Dan is playing this interview with Monique Morris talking about how racism and sexism collide to criminalize black girls. So this interview is from April 23rd, 2016. Thanks for the good picks, Dan. See you later. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>